and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have made them become more real to us or helped us apply them to our lives better because we believe we need all the power we can get from the scriptures in our lives today. I'm your host, uh, Carrie Mielstein, and today I have a, a different, uh, we're going to call her a co-host, a guest and a co-host. This is my, my friend and colleague, Bethany Jensen who uh, I'll have as a guest later in uh, like a couple months when we do Jonah. Uh, we've been playing that for a while, but just yesterday is uh, Bethany and I are involved in an organization together. Uh, and I was thinking I was uh, just going to do this uh, on my own. And and I thought, you know, Bethany would be really great to do. This. So we're actually going to have Bethany be the host today. So I'll tell you just a little bit about Bethany. Uh, and we'll tell you more when we get to Jonah. But um, Bethany and I were together in Jerusalem just a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, well, over 11 years ago, because it's 2022 now, because we were there in, in uh, starting in January of uh, 2011. Uh, and then Bethany was my research assistant and um, has gone on to get a couple of degrees. I'll save some stuff for the next time she comes back rather than telling you everything now. But uh, she works on my excavation with me and um, she is uh, part of uh, the, the organization we were with yesterday is, uh, well, I'll let Bethany tell you about it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this, Bethany, and welcome. Yeah, so, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. This is fun. Um, so the organization is called SPARC, which stands for the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures. And one of the things we do is well, we promote the preservation and research of ancient cultures. Um, we do that in a few different ways. Um, but we um, provide funding to excavations, uh, including the the one that we work on in Egypt, the BYU yeah. Egypt excavation project. And that's probably uh, the biggest one. Well, it is the biggest one. Yeah, but it is the biggest yeah, one. Others. We've yeah, done Megiddo, and, we've done Petra and things like that, the, the exactly. Egyptian ministry in general. Right. And not only does it help us out um, with the excavation, but that also allows us to train other individuals, especially native Egyptians, to be able to study and preserve their own culture, um, which is, is awesome uh, and super important. Uh, and then with the organization, we do uh, monthly lectures, uh, either on the scriptures or on archaeology. Um, we have opportunities to hear from experts like you. Uh, um, love having Carrie involved. And, uh, and Bethany's doing a, an exciting lecture uh, coming up soon, I think in January, to help us kick off New Testament year, one that when she worked for uh, Museum of the Bible, she developed on, on the canon. So we're going to hear from Bethany pretty soon. And yeah, all sorts um, of good stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We the the monthly lectures are a fun way for the membership to connect and um, to hear a little bit more about um, the ancient world and about the scriptures. And um, anyway, it's just it's a fun organization that uh, helps with studying the ancient world, which is yeah. something I love, something I know you love. Yeah. Um, for more information, our our website is sparkproject.org, and that's spark s p a r c project.org. Yeah. Yeah. For that cultures, right. Instead of we, we, if we were German, we could spell culture with a K and then we could have spark with a K, <laughs> but, uh, but we're not. So we'll do spark with a C. Um, yeah. Sparkproject.org. Uh, there's a, like a get involved button somewhere on there and stuff, but you can also see all the stuff we do. Bethany's uh, invaluable on in that organization. It's just, a, it is a lot of fun to do together. So, uh, well, thank you. That's, that, that's uh, just we'd love to invite all of our audience to uh, tune in to Spark. Uh, maybe we'll we'll see if we can um, put together one. Usually uh, you, you kind of join with this membership and that's how you can be part of the lectures. But maybe we'll see if we can put together one where anyone could uh, 
could come in and join and, and see if they uh, mm-hmm. would like to join us or not. So we'll, yeah. we'll have to talk as a board and see when that might work well, but that, that might be a good thing. If so, I'll announce it here on the podcast. Right. So. And I should say one other perk is that there's access, uh, you'll get information or early access to signing up for tours that we, that we do. Um, yeah. We're hoping to have one to Egypt next year. Fingers crossed. We'll see how that works out. Um, but Carrie's yeah. done a couple in the past of church history ones. Um, since during COVID, the international travel wasn't really uh, available. And so he did some at the, the church history sites in the U.S. Yeah. And those were a lot of fun. And I look forward to, uh, we, we did one Israel one once, and I, I look forward to doing that again. Uh, and I, I think uh, you're going to lead one to Egypt, and uh, it'll be a, a few years before I can do that. So we've got... Uh, Lots of great opportunities. And yeah, that's how you get on the priority list is Spark. That's the the, the top priority list. And then uh, we go to other uh, venues from there. So yeah, sparkproject.org. Ah, thanks, Bethany. Thank you. So I think Bethany is going to try. She's going to be the host. So I'm going to uh, just let her host away now as we uh, hit a couple of uh, important chapters in this week's reading. All right. Well, Hopefully this goes well. I've not done the podcast host thing before, so uh, it'll be fun. I never saw you not do something well, so. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Um, So the chapters that we're covering are Isaiah 48 and 49. uh, And one of the things uh, that I was looking at is that Isaiah 48 is the first chapter that Nephi quotes in the Book of Mormon um, chapter. uh, It's first Nephi chapter 20. Um, And in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, uh, verse 23 specifically, Nephi says that he read unto his brethren the words of Isaiah so that he might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord, their Redeemer. And so my question is, um, uh, how how does this chapter accomplish that? Or or why do you think that Nephi starts with this chapter of Isaiah of, of any chapter to pick? That's a great question. And I, I think maybe we, if you wouldn't mind just reading the next verse, I think it will help us answer that. And uh, I, I, I'm i going to, while you're reading, I'm going to grab my Book of Mormon so I can follow along with you, but I don't have it open right here. So uh, if you wouldn't re- mind reading that next verse, verse 24, and that I, I think starts to answer that question. So we don't want to just take 1923 out of context where um, right. Yeah, it, which is I, I actually, I mean, it's a very famous verse in the, the church, and most of the time we take it out of context. So which it used I, to be a scripture mastery back back in my day. It was a scripture mastery. Yeah, I think it still is, but I don't know. They've kind of changed what how they that changed program how that, works. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah, you've just been called as an early morning seminary teacher, so you're going to become very familiar with how it works here pretty soon. <laughs> I'll but, let you know. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, yeah, verse 24 really helps us understand that. Yeah, so First uh, Nephi nineteen twenty four. Wherefore I spake unto them, saying, Hear ye the words of the prophet. Yea, ye, well, sorry, ye who are a remnant of the house of Israel, a branch who have been broken off. Hear ye the words of the prophet, which were written unto all the house of Israel, and liken them unto yourselves, that ye may have hope as well as your brethren, from whom ye have been broken off. For after this manner has the prophet written. Uh, great. So I think we'll find that um, that. The Book of Mormon, for the Book of Mormon, chapters 48 and 49 are probably the most important chapters of Isaiah. You could make an argument for 53 because Abinadi is going to use that quite a bit. But really, these are the ones that get used the most, I think, first and most often. Um, and and it has to do with right w- what we're reading there in verse 24, where he says, okay, you've been broken off. Um, and that's the burning question they have. So in chapter 19, chapter 18 is the chapter that recounts them coming into the promised land. 
So now they're in the promised land. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. These are people who have been part of the covenant, and a huge part of that covenant identity is the promised land, and they're not in it anymore. So the question is, how does this work for us now? It's a question that they're uh, Jewish, you know, everyone they came from is going to have to ask themselves just a few years later as they're uh, in Babylon. Well, actually, it takes them eight years to get to the promised land. So this may be around the same time, right? Well, no, they leave around 600 BC, it's 586. So it's still a few years away, but uh, they're going to have to ask themselves that same question. But for Nephi and Laman and Lemuel and Sam and Lehi and everyone else, the question really is, uh, I thought we were the covenant people, but I thought the covenant people had that promised land and we're not in it. How does this apply? And Nephi's answer for that is Isaiah 48 and 49. So as we go through 48 and 49, I think we should be looking for how they use that to answer this question. But but before we do that, let's even highlight this some more. The, the Nephites are going to have to ask themselves this question again. So Nephi kind of gives them an answer by giving them chapter 48 and 49. And, and they come to understand where they're going to live right then as another promised land. And then a few years later, Lehi dies. Laman and Lemuel are going to kill everyone that's following Nephi. And so Nephi and all of his followers have to leave again. We get that in 2 Nephi 5, right? Uh, they leave again. And I think they have the same question again. Okay, I thought that was our promised land. Uh, this keeps shifting on us. How, how does this uh, apply? So interestingly enough, the next chapter, 2 Nephi 6, is Jacob answering the question, how does this apply to us? And what does he quote? Isaiah 48 and 49. Uh, and you're just going to see, actually, Second Nephi 6 through 9 is really just like Jacob reading a couple of verses of Isaiah and commenting on them and a couple of verses of Isaiah and commenting on them and then interweaving things, uh, Isaiah and himself and so on. But it's these same chapters, 48 and 49. These are the chapters about how scattered Israel is still part of the covenant and and how they will fulfill the covenant in being scattered. And and that's usually important for a couple of reasons. One, uh, let's recognize that the Nephites are part of scattered Israel. They were not scattered because of wickedness, like happened with the northern tribes or is about to happen with the, the southern kingdom as they get scattered into Babylon. They were scattered because of righteousness. God said, I'm going to preserve you. You're righteous. Uh, I want to preserve you from experiencing the destruction everyone else experiences, but I'm still going to scatter you. And there's a reason for that because they're all the scattering also helps with the gathering, right? Because then when Israel is scattered to the entire world, as they're gathered, they can bring the whole world with them. Uh, that's a handy thing. And we're going to see that in the, discussed in these chapters. Um, so that that's a key element for the Nephites, but it's a key element for us. We are scattered Israel in the midst of trying to do the gathering, right? Whether you're literally descended or not, and I suspect more are than aren't, but it doesn't matter. Once you've made that covenant, you're part of covenant Israel, and your job is to gather and bring the world with you. And so what Nephi said to his brothers there in verse 24, right? You're, you're a branch that's been broken off, and Isaiah is writing to Israel, and you are Israel, so read this and he means in some ways all of isaiah in general and in some ways he means isaiah 48 and 49 mm -hmm. read this identifying with it because you're israel and isaiah is talking about you and you need to find yourself in there so i i quote 19 first nephi 19 23 and 24 uh about isaiah in general all the time 
and I feel confident that it's correct to be applied to Isaiah in general. But I think it is most specifically applied to chapter 48 and 49. So the chapters we're about to go through, I think that's uh, that. These are crucial chapters, and we're going to find other Book of Mormon authors that just they they just kind of draw on this imagery. They don't quote it so much as allude to what Nephi and Jacob taught about it. So it becomes really key uh, in Book of Mormon how how the Nephites think of themselves. So, yeah. So that prompts another question as you were talking and talking about. Um, the promised land and the, the Nephites enter into the promised land or Nephi and, you know, whoever's with him at the time. And uh, we also typically the promised land refers to the land of Canaan or the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that maybe the promised land should be understood more metaphorically as a, the, the gathering of Israel as opposed to a physical location? I think it's it's both. And that's so often the answer with uh, Isaiah. Right. <laughs> um, I, I, but I, I think it is both. I think there are a couple of places that are literal geographic locations where Israel is to gather. All right. So we know that there's the land of Canaan. We know there's uh, the Americas in general. But but in the history of our church, there have been a couple of places where God really did say, this is a spot I want you to come and gather physically, geographically right here. Um so there are times where that seems to be important to be able to actually physically be with each other. And and often those are times of vulnerability and when you're just growing and you need to have each other to and a place to be to, in order to flourish. Um, but I think in many ways, it's a place to belong. Uh, and that place can be uh, emotional and social as much as it is geographical. Right? So I often use um, this example uh, that, that you'll appreciate. Uh, when The first time I went to Egypt, I'm a graduate student. I'm paying for it on my own dime. I got a little bit of funding for a flight, um, but I'm paying for it on my own dime. And I get in in the middle of the night. I'm staying in the dumpiest hotel. You can imagine that the bed is even too short for me. And um, it's I mean, it's just a rough place. But I, I got in at uh, like two in the morning, I think I finally got to my hotel and I but I couldn't sleep because it was I was coming from uh LA, it was like a nine hour, 10 hour time zone difference, I think. And it felt like the middle of the day to me. So uh, I found this English newspaper and I was just looking through it. And so this is before there was an internet, actually. Well, I, I know there was, the internet existed, but there wasn't much on it at the time. This was 2001. And so um, there, uh, I couldn't look up anything about the church online that just didn't exist. But this newspaper happened to have at the very bottom when different Christian churches met and where. And I saw when our church met. And so I figured out how to take the the little subway. It's a two-line subway in Cairo that goes, you know, just there's one line that goes north and south, one that goes east and west, and that's it. But I found out how to take it and get off where I was like a 15-minute walk from that place. I had to keep asking directions how to get there, but I end up there in time. Uh, I go to church, and by the time church is over, I've got invitations to lunch. I've got invitations to dinner. Uh, by the time all of that is over, I've got invitations to go with a group the next day to go explore some places in Egypt you can only get to by four-wheel drive and and so on. And I had made friends that some of them I still run into and I still uh, have contact with. But I, I suddenly had a group I belonged with. And if I needed help or something went wrong while I was there, I had a group I could go to. I didn't know anyone a few hours before, but because I'm part of a covenant community, I had a place to belong. And that can happen for us anywhere we go in the world. 
uh, you can show up somewhere and say, I need help moving in and a bunch of people will show up and help you move in. Right. Uh, it is, uh, we have a place as part of this covenant. Uh, and that's just, a, a, again, another little metaphor for what it means to have a promised land. I think, of course, the, the greatest realization of that is the celestial kingdom. That's the great promised land. What the, I hope we're all happy there together one day. I hope not tomorrow, but soon. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that's, uh, there are lots of definitions of promised land. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I think that's an interesting way to look at it. And I love the, the way of thinking about it and the way that our, our church is today and how we bring together our community. Um, I've, I've had that experience internationally as well. And well, nationally too, moving to a new state and, instantly having that community. Um, it's, it's a wonderful blessing. Um, yeah. Cause you've moved like from Seattle to Utah, to Oklahoma, to Tennessee, right? You've had a number yeah. of these moves yeah. that would not normally be easily uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm sure they weren't easy and comfortable, but more easy and comfortable because suddenly as soon as you got there, you had a place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember when I got to Oklahoma and people were like, well, do you, do you have a church? And it's like, uh, yeah, I just kind of looked it up online and found the address and that, that was a foreign concept to them, but it's, it's such a blessing. And like you said, part of that, that covenant, um, covenant people sort of thing. And so with that language, I uh, kind of wanted to talk about um, covenants in general. That was something that was uh, stuck out to me as I was reading and stuck out to you as well, because you mentioned it to me. Um, can you talk a little bit more about covenants, uh, kind of as Isaiah would have seen them, the context there with the ancient world? And how what we can learn from that. Yeah, and I, I think Isaiah 48 is a fantastic place to to look at this. So um, we've talked on this podcast back when we were doing Abraham and, and others about the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but but we have, I think, some additional ways of looking at it here. So the Abrahamic covenant is, is huge. I cannot overstate the, the importance of that concept or of understanding it if you're going to understand Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is referring to the covenant all along. Um, and they would have, so our, when you hear us in our day, try and explain the covenant to someone, we often will say, well, it's like a contract, right? Because that's what we're most familiar with. In Isaiah's day, they would have said, well, it's like a treaty, except for their word for treaty was covenant. So, uh, it's like a covenant between nations. That's what they would have said. And, uh, so God seems to, to, he, he the scriptures tell us he speaks to us according to our language and our understanding, right? He's going to present things to us in a way that we're used to and we can get. And so he often administers this covenant in terms that will seem familiar to us. So, for example, you can look at the way covenants were formulated in Abraham's day, and you see the way God speaks to Abraham about the covenant matches more what the way it would have uh, a, a covenant between nations would have been stipulated in Abraham's day than it does in the way it happens in Moses' day. But when you see the way it's explained in Moses' day, and it's the same covenant, but it's explained more the way covenants are being formulated in Moses' day, right? So God uses models that we're accustomed to. And so I, I think that's what we can see here in Isaiah 48. Uh, in uh, Isaiah's day, there's a typical way that, that covenants or treaties are set out. And Isaiah 48 actually conforms to that model fairly well. So maybe I'll just kind of highlight an overview of it. And then uh, as we're going along, we can we can uh, look, well, maybe let's start with verse one uh, and two and, and give you specific examples. And I can give you a little overview. And then as we, we can maybe start moving through the chapter and, and uh, seeing how it works. All right. So I would say verse, uh, well, let's just read verse one and, and then verse two. Um, 
Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel and are come forth out of the waters of Judah. Remind me to come back to that concept, waters mm -hmm. of, of Judah, um, which swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city and stay upon the uh, or, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, this would be what we call the preamble to a covenant. Most covenants have a preamble where you really you kind of state who's involved in the covenant, right? You name them specifically uh, and and just kind of set the context. And that's uh, look at we've got God naming himself and Israel several times. It says here, this house of Jacob called by the name of Israel. All right. So both the names you get for them, he's going to uh, uh, lay out there. He's going to mention that they have sworn by his name. And the word that's translated there by as swear is the word uh, that Sheva is for um, an oath. It's the same word that's used, for example, with Abraham when he goes to a place that's named after there, the well of the oath at Beersheba, uh, because he makes an oath or a covenant there. Uh, it's that same word. All right. So it's it's the word for an oath. So that have made an oath in the name of Jehovah. Uh, he's clear about that. And then we get to verse two where he's really clear. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah of the hosts of heaven, basically of the armies of heaven is his name. So he's very clearly outlining who is involved in this covenant. But he has a couple of other little elements that uh, are typical of a preamble there. So or, or indicate the nature of the covenant, I guess I should say, which is what a preamble does is it indicates the nature nature of it. So he said there come forth out of the waters of Judah. Now, in the Book of Mormon version of this. Uh, it will say, so let's let's look uh, chapter 20, 1 Nephi 20, verse 1. It mm -hmm. says, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah or out of the waters of baptism. Now, in the 1830 edition, that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. It's the original manuscript. It's not in the printer's manuscript. It's not in the 1830 edition. It's in the 1840s edition, the 1840, that Joseph Smith adds that. So that mm -hmm. seems to be probably not original text, but Joseph Smith recognizing that this would clarify and help people understand what is being referred to. But the waters of baptism, that's when we enter into the covenant, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, Joseph Smith is making sure we recognize here the, the covenant connotations of what's going on here. And then we get this idea where he says, uh, you make mention of the God of Israel. It's probably better translated that remember the God of Israel. And that's one of the stipulations of the covenant is to remember God. It's It's given like 10 times in Deuteronomy as part of the stipulation here. I've got it written down here, uh, chapter six, eight, and 11. And it's several times. Those are a couple of examples. And it's several times in each of those chapters where God says, you have to remember me as part of this covenant. So this is still uh, laying it out, but notice what God says. Okay. You've made a covenant, but look at that end of verse one, but not in truth or in righteousness. We made a covenant, but I'm not so sure you're keeping it is, is what he's saying. Right. And uh, verse two, they, they call themselves of, of uh, that they're of me and they rely on me as if they were keeping the covenant and could trust in me to give them the covenant blessings. But I don't think they're keeping the covenant. Right. Mm -hmm. So we get the preamble. Let me just kind of highlight some of the others. Verse um, three through eight would represent um, the outlining of the history between two parties. So the next part of a covenant is you outline the history between them. And so this might be, you know, we've been enemies in the past, but now we're friends or we've been friends for a long time and now we're renegotiating this or mm -hmm. something along those lines. But, but, and usually you include stories and things like that in there. So you, you have the history of the covenant. 
verses 9 through 13 would outline the conditions of the treaty or the covenant. This is where you say, here's here's what we're going to, to do with this. Um, and 14 through 16 um, represent a calling of witnesses for the uh, the ratification of the covenant. So you, you call witnesses, that's a typical part of the covenant, and, and it's in the same order. This is how you find the order in, in these ancient covenants. And then 17 through 21 outlined the, the blessings uh, or the outcomes that you expect. So they, they would say, these are what we expect now that, that when we keep these covenant, here's what should come of it. Um, and when it's a covenant with God, he outlines the blessings that we'll receive. So that's 17 through 21. So that's kind of the, the basic outline of the covenant. Now we could go through and explore it a little bit more. Um, but giving this kind of bird's eye view of mm. how this conforms to an ancient covenant, I hope it helps us appreciate how much this is about the covenant. That's something Nephi would have recognized and I'm guessing would have taught Jacob enough to recognize. And that's part of why they're going to turn to these chapters when they're trying to remind their their people we're still part of the covenant. Yeah, we've moved, but we're still part of the covenant. And that should speak really powerfully for us, to us, because we have all sorts of things going on in our lives that you may think, huh, that's not what I expected in the covenant. And it's good to be reminded, it doesn't matter, you are still part of the covenant. It may not be working out how you thought it would, mm -hmm. but you're still part of the covenant. Yeah. Well, and it made me think of, um, as you're talking for kind of a modern application, um, talking about entering in with the waters of baptism, and then you said part of the covenant is to remember, which is what we're reminded of every week with the, uh, the sacrament prayers, right? Like we, we promise to always remember. Um, and every week we get reminded of that, that promise, that part of the covenant that we're supposed to be keeping. Um, that's good. I hadn't thought of that, but you're exactly right. That's good. Yeah. It's still a big part of our covenant for us then, isn't it? Yeah. Remember God and what he's yeah. done for us. Well, that's great. Which you wouldn't think would be that hard, but it's sometimes, you know, it's easy to forget, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe, maybe if it's all right, uh, maybe we can just explore this a little bit more. Uh, I mean, I, I know I give this big outline of it, but maybe I can explore a little bit more, at least a couple of the elements in chapter 48. Yeah, I think that'd um, be great to kind of break it down a little bit more. Yeah. So as we said, uh, we've got the, uh, in, in verses three through eight, we've got that kind of um, uh telling us what's what's gone on in the past and so on, right? Um, so uh, you get God telling them, and this becomes a regular refrain, really. You probably, if you've read chapters 40 through 47 at this point, you're going to say, okay, wow, I've seen this in every chapter. It is for, for a section of Isaiah. It's in every chapter where God tells them, look, I have told you so often what was going to happen before it happened? Why are you ever doubting me? Mm -hmm. I, like I've demonstrated clearly that I know what's going to happen. I've demonstrated clearly that I'm God. Could you please pay attention to me now? Um, and so that's part of the uh, the history that he's outlining so that he says, you know, I've declared verse three, I've declared the former things from the beginning. Uh, verse four, because I knew you were obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew. So he's saying, I know how stubborn you are and how prideful you are. Mm -hmm. That's why I've had to very clearly demonstrate that I'm God. Right. So that's part of what's happening. It's not just declaring who the parties are, but the relationship in that preamble. So some covenants are between equal parties. 
right? So the Egyptians and the Hittites establish a covenant that is between equal parties. The Egyptians and the Canaanites establish a covenant that is clear. Egypt is the, the person in charge, and they're the vassal states, right? Mm -hmm. At this point, there's a, a, an agreement between Judah and Assyria that makes it clear Assyria's in charge, and Judah's the vassal state. Mm -hmm. God is making it clear, I'm the powerful person in this covenant. Now, the great thing is that a typical covenant, the person who's in charge is exploiting the weaker party, right? So for Judah, the um, uh, vassal state, well, I guess not at this point. In, in chapter 48, they've now successfully rebelled, but the, they're, they just barely have successfully rebelled. So mm -hmm. there was a covenant that they violated uh, at this point but um, with, with Assyria, but uh, as part of that covenant, they were having to send all sorts of goods and all sorts of tribute and people and so on to the Assyrians as the Assyrians exploit them. Interestingly enough, in the covenant with God, God is the more powerful party and we exploit him. Mm -hmm. Right. He, he said, it up. no, actually, I have so much to give you. I'm just mm -hmm. going to I don't really get a lot out of you, um, mm -hmm. but I, I, there are some things I want you to do. But I'm the one who's giving in this relationship. That's incredible. I mean, really incredible to have a relationship with a being who is so much more powerful than us. And all he's doing is helping us. That's mm -hmm. that's very godly and so unlike the world. Right. Yeah. yeah. Makes you want to be in that kind of a relationship more often. Like, I'm glad to be involved with God. Um Anyway, he continues to go on in verse five and talks about, uh, you know, I also told you these things so that you won't think not only that you did it, but also you won't think that your idol did it and and so on. Um, so he gets a, a bit of that. But then when we get to verse nine, we get this little change that, again, really refers to the covenant. He says, for my name's sake, will I defer mine anger and for my praise, will I rephrase, refrain from thee that I cut thee not off. So the point is. We have it, Judah has done enough in terms of turning to idolatry that God should just cut them off, but he's not going to for his sake. And by that, he means because I said I wouldn't. Right. I gave my word that I would always work with you, that I would always leave a remnant, that I would never stop giving you another chance. And that's the only reason you're getting another chance here, because we covenanted with each other. And I promised that that's what would happen. So here you go. That's happening for Judah then. I am so glad that that's part of our relationship now. So glad. Because what it means is, I, I mean, we all do stupid things. We all have times where we, we have to come to God and say, you know, I know I have promised you 10 times, 20 times, I would never do this again. And I did it again. And uh, and our tendency is to feel like that. that's it. God mm -hmm. doesn't want to hear from me anymore. He's done with me. And that's mm -hmm. what Satan would have us believe. But the truth of the matter is God has said, I promised I wouldn't give up on you. And maybe that's the only reason I'm not giving up on you, but I'm not going to give up on you. And and that's amazingly comforting to me uh, for yeah. big and little things in our lives where we have to come to God that way. Right. Absolutely. And it um, makes me think of, and we're not, I know we're not there yet, but it makes me think of Hosea and his whole story and yeah. um, kind of as a metaphor of Hosea and his wife as a metaphor for the Lord and us and how um, he'll, he'll continually come after us to rescue us, no matter what we're doing, because that's what the covenant is, is that he will be there for us. And, um, obviously our job is to, to remember him and to return. Uh, we shouldn't continually make the Lord come after us, but, but he will. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, and thank, okay. I, I was about to say, thank goodness, but let's say it literally. Thank God. 
Yeah. Right. Thank the Lord that that's the model. And I'm with you. I think Hosea illustrates this better than any other book in the Bible. In some ways to me, Hosea explains the whole Old Testament. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love the book of Hosea yeah. because I think it's the Old Testament in a nutshell. So mm-hmm. I, I look forward to when we get to Hosea. It's yeah, he's just fun. And Gomer, I mean, Absolutely. what yeah. a great name, Gomer. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, sorry, not to jump ahead, but that, it's also one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And so that's what I got me thinking of. So. Well, and, and it certainly applies here, I think. It, it absolutely does. Let's jump ahead. I mean, there's so much in here. We could spend forever waiting through every verse, but let's jump ahead um, because I want to make sure we leave time for 49 as well. So let's absolutely. jump ahead to uh, verse 14. Um, well, no, no, verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. So this is, uh, we're about to get a transition here, um, starting in verse 14, but he again is letting us know who he is and asking us to work with him. In verse 13, he's going to remind us he's the creator. Verse 14, all ye assemble yourselves and hear, which among them hath declared these things? The Lord hath loved him, meaning Jacob, uh, and he will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. So you see what he's saying? I, I know you've strayed from me. And as a result, you're being oppressed. And elsewhere he's saying, I'm, I bring the Assyrians on you. I bring the Babylonians on you. I do all of that to humble you. And then I will deliver you. Uh, I got you into this mess. I'll get you out of it, kind of, right? Except for that they mm-hmm. got themselves into the mess. But he is the one that brought the punishment upon them. So he will, get, he will relieve them of that oppression. Um, and that's, that's really important. So... Um, then we get to something like verse 17, where he starts to outline the blessings and he says, thus saith the Lord, thy redeemer. So it's note the titles that he gives himself. He's trying to say something. Redeemer is the one who buys you back out of bondage. So he's just been talking about how, yeah, you haven't done well. I'm going to humble you. You're going to be with the uh, Babylonians, but I will relieve that oppression. And so the next thing he calls himself is the redeemer, having brought them out of that terrible situation that they got themselves into Uh, thy redeemer the holy one of israel i am the lord thy god which teacheth thee to profit which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go i find that is such beautiful language right isn't that what we want someone who'll just lead us like as a kid of course we want that but i can think of plenty of times where i've been traveling and i'm kind of lost and i'm not sure how to get somewhere and uh and someone says oh i know how just follow me oh man the relief that comes Thank you. Thank you yeah. that you will take me where I need to go and I don't know how to get there. Right. Mm-hmm. Someone who will lead us by the way. And honestly, let's be clear. We don't know how to get where we need to go in terms of our eternal progression. Mm-hmm. We just don't. But God will lead us there. Right. It's beautiful, beautiful language. Yeah. Then he says, oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. So again, he's He's saying what should have happened in the past, but in a way he's saying then this is what will happen if you really will come back and start keeping the covenant. So, oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, that's our obligation under the, the covenant. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. So he chooses some images of stuff that just never stops. And it says, this is what your righteousness and your peace will be like, unending. It reminds me of like when uh, we get in, in section 121 and 122, at the end of 122, this idea that our dominion will flow to us without compulsory means forever. This is a, uh, that's a, a beautiful way of saying it. This is a slightly more poetic way of saying it. It's going to be like a river or the waves of the sea, right? The waves of the sea 
never stop, right? Like on a lake, I look forward to the, the calm period where I can go skiing. Mm-hmm. Now, there are calmer periods on the ocean, but there's never a calm period. The mm-hmm. waves never stop, right? right? And, and that's what our peace and righteousness will be. Well, that's, mm-hmm. that's great stuff. And the seed, thy seed had also been as the sand offspring, like the bowels of the gravel or the offspring of thy bowels, like the gravel thereof. Again, this is just saying enormous posterity. This is direct Abrahamic covenant language, right? Just quoting right from what was said to Abraham. Um, and his name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. And then note how he ends this. This is the plea, what we need to do if we're going to really receive these blessings. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing, declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth, say ye, the Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. So God is absolutely willing to redeem us, and he conquers Babylon, but he needs them to leave right i mm-hmm. this is so us if we're going to say babylon as so this this is literal right this literally happens for the jews where mm-hmm. uh god has, has and he's very serious um specific that cyrus the persian will come in and conquer babylon and the jews can go home and cyrus does and he allows the jews to mm-hmm. go back and most of them don't mm-hmm. most of them stay in babylon right uh that's that's a literal fulfillment but think of what this means for us with when babylon is a symbol of worldliness uh, and God is saying, yeah, I, I've redeemed you from the world, and you're staying there. Why? Yeah. Leave Babylon. Elder Maxwell had some great images of this where he said, you know, many of us leave Babylon, but we maintain a summer cottage there. Mm. Um, and yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's alarmingly true of all of us. Like every now, I'll read that and I laugh and then I'm like, oh, dang, wait. Oh, yeah, I can think of how I'm doing that. <laughs> I've never had a time where I can say, oh, yeah, hmm. I guess I need to get rid of that cottage, right? Um, so I get rid of one cottage, and then I realize I actually had like 50 cottages there, and mm-hmm. I need to keep getting rid of them. Uh, it's so hard to leave Babylon, but it's what we need to do. We just have yeah. to find So I guess the question to ask yourself right now is, in what way are you not leaving Babylon right now? There are probably plenty of ways you are leaving Babylon, and I'm glad for that, and you should be happy about that. But ask yourself right now, in what way am I not leaving Babylon? God opened the way for me to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm staying there. How? Why? And 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 how am I not leaving? It's it's great stuff. He uses imagery after that about uh, how he provided for them when they were in Egypt, right? By bringing them water and bringing them through the desert. So this reminding them, I can. If you'll leave, I can get you through. The mm-hmm. You just need to decide you're going to leave. Mm-hmm. So chapter uh, forty-eight, I think, is is beautiful and powerful stuff. And and maybe we'll mention one other thing about what the Book of Mormon does here, what Nephi does, uh, before we move on to forty-nine. And we'll see what whatever you want us to talk about with forty-nine. But um, Nephi gives this a very specific Nephite interpretation, right? So mm-hmm. he he quotes forty-eight and forty-nine in Second Nephi um, uh, twenty and twenty-one, and then Second Nephi twenty-two is his commentary on it. Which I said, Second Nephi. It's First Nephi. I lied. Mm-hmm. Sorry. First Nephi, uh, twenty-two. It's his commentary on it, uh, and he gives it a really, really specific Nephite interpretation, which is great, beautiful, powerful stuff. It's not the only interpretation, and honestly, I don't know if uh, Isaiah even knew that this was going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if he knew about the Nephites. Maybe, maybe not. 
Uh, it's certainly not the only interpretation. So in a way, Nephi is, is giving us license to look for multiple fulfillments, and we should have had that license anyway, but he gives us further license to look for multiple fulfillments. And, and if Nephi is going to say, okay, here's how this works for us, you and I should also be able to say, all right, here we understand, we need to understand Isaiah's original context. Now let's say, okay, how does this work for us? Uh, and and so some people look at the fact that there's a Nephite interpretation and it limits them when I think instead mm. it should open up possibilities for us rather than limiting possibilities for us. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that tends to trip people up with Isaiah is the idea that there are multiple fulfillments or multiple interpretations, that there's not just the one answer that, yes, he's talking about. Assyria and Babylon and the ancient world and the world that he's immersed in. Well, not at the same time because Assyria and Babylon. Anyway, uh, yeah, but but, uh, but he's also well, but, but he about, is dealing with Babylon, right? He, the right. Babylonian visitors come to Hezekiah and so on. So right. yeah, but but you're right, yeah. not the, yet the oppression, but yeah, um, yeah, and just time period. Anyway, not to get yeah. into the the weeds of it all, but he's dealing with you know the the context in which he's living, and he's also dealing with the what's to come and in i think multiple iterations i don't think it just has to be our day i think it can be nephi's yeah. day it can be joseph smith's day it can be our day it can be our day last year and next year and 10 years from now um like you said with this the um having the, the with uh, um elder maxwell's quote about the house in ba and Bab the cottage in babylon yeah. um you know, that's not something that's going to be applicable at a single moment in our lives, but something that would be applicable at multiple, multiple times. Um, and so just the, the idea that there's kind of, it's not, there's not one answer with Isaiah, um, nor, nor really with any scripture, I think. I think there's always room for multiple interpretations and applications. Uh, now my audience is seeing why I like you so much. Uh, <laughs> That's, well, that was so well I had said. Some, I had some good professors. What can I uh, say? Well, <laughs> that, that was well said. So, Well, good. I don't know if you have anything specific you want to look at as we go into to chapter 49 or if we should just keep going oh. or, or what your thoughts are. Uh, if you, I, I'll let you ask questions if you want or you just uh, I, shut up yeah. or tell me keep going. I don't know what's most helpful, whether to kind of start at the beginning and go through. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is in 49. And so... I kind of want to jump to that, but I'm also happy to go through in order if that's... Well, why don't you tell us what that verse is, and then we'll set the context for it. Um, so it is uh, verses kind of 14 through 16, um, or wherever that... I guess it kind of picks up in 13 as well, um, but especially 15 and 16 is where you, the, kind of the meat of it. And so um, I'll pick... I'll, I'll uh, yeah. start in... The paragraph starts in 13, so I'll start with 13, but it's... Uh, sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Oh, that's, that's some beautiful imagery. Um, yeah. All right, so let's let's do set the context for that. So let's build up to it. Those are the verses to okay. build up to. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right, so uh, and there's there's another thing that I should highlight. Um, and in one of the episodes that if you've been listening to all the episodes for this week in order, you you'll remember one of my class videos I've made available. 
I pointed out this huge chiasmus that runs from chapter 40 through 57. And in a chiasmus, the central points are the most important points. And so the central chapters in this chiasmus are 48 and 49. Mm -hmm. So I hope this is the fact that they're the ones that uh, Nephi and Jacob will go to, uh, the fact that they're the center of this chiasmus and so on, I hope is is giving people an idea of how important these chapters are, right? Um, So there is a shift, though. As you go from 48 to 49, they're they're both about the same general thing, but there's a little mm-hmm. shift, and you'll see this then, that the reflection of the first part of the chiasmus, the pre-48 stuff, as you go the post-49 stuff, they're a reflection of the earlier ideas, but with the same little shift in there, all right? And it, it has to do with uh, servants making things available for the Gentiles mm-hmm. uh, and the interrelationship with the Gentiles. So um, let's, let's go to verse 1, and actually... Uh, Let's do this. Uh, let's have our audience at home read uh, from the Isaiah version. And do you still have your Book of Mormon in front of you, uh, I do. Bethany? Would you read verse 1? So First uh, Nephi 21, verse 1, is equivalent to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. But you're going to hear that Nephi has a pretty good chunk at the beginning of this verse that isn't in the Isaiah stuff. And I, I, you always have to ask yourself, okay, is that original to Isaiah or was that something that whoever wrote the brass plates added on or so on? This feels original to me. I don't know for sure, but it just, it, the, the language and the way it fits into the theme and the way it carries things, it feels original to me. So if you would read uh, verse one of First Nephi 21, and then I'll just kind of point out for those who are like driving and not looking at their scriptures, so don't stop and look at your scriptures if you're driving. Um <laughs> Uh, I'll point out what the difference is. So, well, okay. let me just say right now, when you get to listen, O Isles, unto me, that's where first ne- or, or, uh, verse one starts in Isaiah 49. So everything until you get to listen, O Isles, unto me is added by the brass plates version of Isaiah. Okay. Um, and again, hearken, O ye house of Israel, all ye that are broken off and are driven out because of the wickedness of the pastors of my people. Yea, all ye that are broken off, that are scattered abroad, who are of my people, O house of Israel. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. All right, thank you. So the the way Isaiah, we have it now, that I think is actually a little bit broken off, um, the way we have it now, it starts with this, this plea to listen, isles. Isles is kind of Isaiah's way of saying, far flung and scattered. All right. So uh, like the Nephites consider themselves on an isle. Uh, it was a pretty big island, right? I guess, but I, I don't know. But anyway, and who knows, maybe they were really on an island and later they moved. I don't know. But um, they consider themselves on an island because they've got this mentality. Well, the center of the world was where we came from. Now we're out. Who knows where we want a notion to get there. It must be an island. Um, so they they think of themselves as this island and they are being called and he's going to talk about a servant that by now we've talked about a few times this idea of a servant that is in some ways Christ is in, it, it's specifically identified as Israel it's also Isaiah it's Joe Smith and it's you um he's going to talk about this servant but note how the beginning that that is preserved for us in the book of mormon really makes it explicit that he's saying, Israel, I'm talking to all of you, Israel, and I know you've all been scattered um, because you haven't done well. You've been scattered, but still listen to me. However scattered you are, however broken off you are, 
however far flung you are, uh, you're still Israel and I'm still your God. So, so listen, and let's talk about what's going to happen. Right. And you can see why that would be with that beginning of that verse, why this is so meaningful to Nephi and Jacob in those situations in, in having just come to the promised land or having had to move again in the promised land, they really identify with this. Ye that are broken off and are driven out because of the wickedness of the pastors of my people, right? They know that people were trying to kill their father. The leaders of Jerusalem were trying to kill their father. They understand the wickedness of the pastors of my people uh, and so on. And so they're going to really identify with that, but we should too. I hope it resonates with us as scattered Israel in the midst of gathering. This should really strike a chord with us. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the beginning of this. And then you get this, uh, him speaking, um, in, in a way, this is clearly Isaiah, but in a way, this is all of Israel and in a way, and it's going to be identified as Israel in verse three. In a way, it's every Israelite individual who's trying to serve God. So in verse two, um, he, he's made my mouth like a sharp sword and the shadow of his hand hath he hid me. And you've got this great parallelism here. And he made me a polished shaft and his quiver hath he hid me. So the idea, I am a useful tool and he's been reserving me for a certain time. Clearly true of Isaiah, clearly true of Joseph Smith, clearly true of Christ clearly true of Israel as a whole coming out of obscurity and, and so on. Right. And then suddenly uh, going to do God's work. It should be true of you as well. Right. Uh, you and me and all of us, God is going to use us. Let's be used by him. Let's be ready to be used for him. And he said unto me, thou art my servant, O Israel. So this is one of the couple of places where he specifically identifies who the servant is in whom I will be glorified. And, and then you get, you can see Israel saying this, you can see Christ saying this, you can see Isaiah saying this, you can see like Mormon and Moroni saying this, that they've labored in vain, right? They've done all this work and nothing is coming of it. And it often feels that way, right? Poor Isaiah, one of God's most able servants, and he's trying to warn the Northern kingdom and they don't listen and they're destroyed, trying to warn the Southern kingdom. And most of them are destroyed, right? It seems like, okay, didn't do that well. Uh, although I suspect that in the end, Isaiah has done a bit of good. Um, so we get uh, verse five. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob again unto him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So Isaiah or Israel, they they may not be having all the success that they feel like. And this really reminds me of Mormon and Moroni, uh, where Mormon says, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're successful or not, if you've tried. And, and in some ways, that's what he's saying here, although he is saying that he will be successful. Then we get to verse six, and he said, it is a light thing. Now, the word here is the word for light as in not heavy. All right. So it's not light as in luminosity, mm -hmm. um, but light. It's, it's a not heavy thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light, this is luminosity, mm -hmm. a, shi a shining beacon to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. So he seems to be saying, hey, Israel, or hey, Isaiah, or hey, Joseph Smith, or hey, Bethany, or hey, whoever in our audience, right, Cindy, <laughs> or whoever else. Um, you are, I, I, I've given you a, a, what seems like a big task in gathering Israel, but actually I'm saying that's too small a work for you. You can do more than this. I want you to gather the whole world. And again, that's Israel's task to be gathered. But as they're being gathered, bring the whole darn world with them. Right. And maybe darn is the right 
term, but or stronger than that. But uh, um, the, the that's part of the reason Israel is scattered, also to humble them. But part of it is because that makes it so that God can gather them and have them bring the world. That's our job. We have to remember that it's not just to save people who are already saved, right? This would be like the uh, Christ to the Pharisees. Uh, I'm here to bring the sick with mm. me, right? Mm. I, I'm I'm not here to help people who are fine. Yeah, I'm I'm here to save people who aren't yet fine, and that's got to be our job, right? Uh, verse seven: Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth. And so this is to Israel, this is to Isaiah, this is to me and you. Um, and and to, he talks about how there being a, a, a behord. Uh, but kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Right, And we can go on. This verse has got so many beautiful images. Verse 9, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. Uh, I took me. I just uh, learned recently that if you you pronounce the correct pronunciation for S H E W is still show. So anyway, um, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pasture shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. I mean, think of all this imagery that God is giving us through Isaiah to say, when you go to help gather people to me, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to open ways. I'm going to take care of you. It doesn't mean it won't ever be hard. He didn't say, and I will beam you up, right? No, I'm making ways, and you'll have to walk them, but I am making ways, right? Uh, and and so on. Uh, it's just beautiful language. And we mm. get something like verse 13. Uh, and so this is getting to where you uh, were looking at. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. I love that. Break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people. So think of in Isaiah's day, they've gone through all these terrible, terrible things. And then we got in chapter 40 at the end, when Jerusalem has just been saved, then he says, comfort ye my people, right? They were in need of comfort at that point. Uh, but they were being comforted. They'd been delivered. And so he's he's hearkening back to that. And he's saying, I have comforted you. I delivered you. Right. And I will have mercy on the afflicted. But it's going it's to come after affliction because you keep forsaking me. And then you think that I forsake you. Right. So Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my, my Lord has forgotten me. The problem is we stray from God. And then we think, huh. He abandoned me, right? That's what happens. He doesn't abandon us. We abandon him. And that's when we get this fantastic imagery that you have, uh, that you brought up in verse 15, right? Can a mother forget her sucking child? It's actually pretty hard. If you are nursing and it's past time when the baby usually eats, a mother knows it, right? It starts, the, the buildup of milk starts to become painful, eventually starts to become leaky and everything else. You don't forget that you have a nursing child. Your body will remind you, right? Um, and even with that, he says, it's more likely that they will forget their nursing child than I will forget you. And so he's, he's, we see God often giving himself a motherly image, right? Mm -hmm. Like the hand that gather, gathers her chicks under the wings mm -hmm. and so on. He is going to, to mother us. Uh, and I, I love that imagery. And, um, 
and how clearly he makes it that he won't forget us. And I think let's let's go to verse 16, which is actually what I thought you were going to say was your one of your favorite verses. But I think I probably just didn't let you get there. At, but but where it's continuing that same thought. Mm-hmm. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Right. That's that's really powerful because in in um, Israelite symbolism, you receive something in the palm of your hand. Uh, that's that's where it's received. And so he's saying he's received us, but he's not receiving us temporarily. Mm-hmm. He's engraving it. It's there forever. And of course, we will love that symbolism because we know that in the palm of his hands are the marks of the nails that made it possible for him to receive us that made it possible for him to to mother us uh and beget us and and so on and so it's it's fantastic imagery that that he mm-hmm. would engrave in us there he receives us permanently and then we get the the idea that it, walls are continually before me walls are what protect you right so if if mm-hmm. our protection is continually before uh, uh, him is one of the ways that we could say this so i think that's uh you have good choice in in good in, in verses that you like it's good stuff well and that, that i actually that was something i had noted to ask you about because i think with verse 16 especially like it's very easy to read a christian interpretation there um i, I like you i can also see the you know the image of um the nails in the hands i my mind immediately goes there but I also know that you did your master's thesis uh, related to the image of the palm. In, yeah. <laughs> and so I was going to ask you for, for further insight there as to what, um, um, you know, a, a Jewish interpretation might be or an ancient Israelite interpretation might be for that type of imagery. Yeah. And, and we, we can go on it a little bit more. I, I kind of mentioned it, but typically uh, there's an image of supplication where you spread your palms out before God. And if they're empty and clean, then he will fill them if they're if they're full of blood. And so that's what it says in Isaiah chapter one. When you spread your palms before me, I won't answer it because they're full of blood. Well, actually, interestingly enough, Christ's palms were full of blood because a nail went through them. But that's what it is. Our our blood that makes it possible for or his blood, but because of our sins. Right. So uh, our iniquity for which he spills his non iniquitous blood that allows him to receive us. And that's the thing you spread forth your palms. If they're clean, then you receive in them what you need. Uh, and I think that's exactly what's happening here. Mm-hmm. He can show that his palms, well, they weren't clean. I mean, they weren't empty. They, they, they had a hole. Well, I guess they were, they had a hole. And at one point they had pure blood in them, but that is exactly what allows him to receive us and to receive us permanently. So I, I think it's powerful imagery. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And and this chapter just goes on and on with uh, images of uh, coming to God and bringing others with us. It's really the, the highlight of it. I think it's worth just uh, noting just a couple of Book of Mormon uh, facts as well. So um, we get um, in, in 1 Nephi 22, when Nephi is uh, referencing chapter 48 and 49, and he especially references verse 22. So let's read 22 and 23. He references those verses. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. 
and the king and king shall be thy nursing fathers and their queens thy nursing mothers they shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet and thou shalt know that i am the lord for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me and you can see why this would be so important to nephi because he knows that's the way that his descendants are going to come back he knows that most of them are destroyed there's a mixture that are preserved with his brothers but i think he thinks of his brothers i mean they're i mean it's basically nephews and nieces he's seen in the future right they're not completely foreign to him uh, or or uh, completely other they're they're part of his group and he sees that that mixture is only going to be saved as Gentile nations. Now, I think it will be Israelite individuals leading the way in those Gentile nations, but it's Gentile nations that come to restore the gospel and the covenant to his descendants. And so you can see why that would be important to him. Um, and and so after, it, I find it really interesting, he combines, so he, he quotes Isaiah 48 and 49, and then he references those two verses, and he combines them with uh, Isaiah 29, 14, and the idea of a marvelous work and a wonder, mm -hmm. right? That's where you get that. So so he starts mixing Isaiah verses together uh, and, and synthesizing them as he sees what's happening. He's seen in vision what's going to happen to his people. And so he says, this is the marvelous work and a wonder that you have this Gentile nation that brings forth and at least one specific Nephi interpretation of the marvelous work is the Book of Mormon. So you're going to bring this Book of Mormon, and that's going to help gather in my people Israel, but it's going to help gather Israel from all over the world, right? Which then is the Gentile nations helping Israelite individuals to accept the gospel so that those Israelite individuals can bring Gentile individuals with them, and pretty soon everyone is part of this, right? And it's not just Nephi that does this. So Jacob, uh, he quotes these same verses— um, and uh, just after they've separated themselves from the Nephite, Lamanites in 2 Nephi 6 through 7, um, and, and he tells his audience, or he, he speaks specifically to his audience and saying that he, he's quoting Isaiah because they're part of House of Israel and they could liken these verses to themselves. So he's just like, like Nephi in this, right? And then he's just going to go for the next several verses. He's just going to quote um, one of these verses starting in, in 22, uh, but he'll quote some and then talk about it and quote some and talk about it and quote some and talk about it. So these are, are really crucial verses for Jacob. Jacob loves this next set of verses. Um, so, and we're almost done uh, with them. So maybe let's just read the last few verses in chapter 49. So we read 22 and 23. Let's do 24. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captive delivered? So he's asking, uh, and, and this is important. Uh, it's something that we have a hard time understanding. But in the ancient world, if you went to battle against someone and you won, then anyone you conquered could be your servant lawfully. That's the, You're the mighty, and they're your prey, and they are your lawful captive. You now own them legally, and it would be recognized by all nations. That's your servant. You own them. All right. We don't like that idea, but that's how it worked in the ancient world. All right. So when uh, God says, can anyone take the lawful captive uh, from someone? No. Right now, think in terms of we've got Babylon is, is conquering. Well, Assyria has conquered and taken captive lots of Israelites. Mm -hmm. Babylon is soon going to conquer and take lots of, of Jews. Um Think in terms of yourself. You and I are lawful captives to death and hell. Right? But they legally own us. Um, and that's just how, how it is. And so he says, can anyone fix that? Not really anyone, but. 
me, right? And that's why we get the ver next verse. But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered, for I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. He does it with Assyria. He does it with Babylon. He does it with Rome. He, well, he does it with the Seleucids and you know the Greek empires. He does it with death and hell. He does it with your uh, addiction to whatever you're addicted to, with your oppression from anxiety and depression and whatever else it is. Uh, all of these, to some degree, we become lawful captives because of our own action, right? So I'm not saying that all of the afflictions we all suffer are because of sin. They're not. But there are certainly things that we suffer because we did something we shouldn't have done, um, and most especially death and hell. Uh, and we are lawful captives, and it doesn't matter. God will contend with them. He is the one person who can redeem us or set us free from those things which have a right to claim us. He is, and that's the idea of a redeemer. The redeemer, someone may actually legally own a servant, but the redeemer, the close kinsman, has the right to buy them back. And it doesn't matter how much you want to keep someone as a servant. If their close kinsman come and says, here's the payment, you can't refuse them. That's what Christ does for us. That's his redeeming. This is redeemer imagery he's, he's using here as he says he will buy us back. That's why we're engraven on his palms. He can receive us and never let us go because he can contend with those that contend with us and he can redeem us, right? It's just fantastic stuff. Then a little bit more of that helping us get out from oppression in verse 26. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine, and all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. All right, so we, we sometimes get a little squeamish about this, uh, about God coming out in such vengeance. But I, I, let me say this, um, I would feel hesitant to have a God who won't set things right when someone is oppressing someone else right i i i don't think that's the kind of god we want we want a, a god who will come and set things right um and I, I love the way it ends i am your savior and redeemer the mighty one of jacob so it, it that mighty one of jacob reminds us of the covenant when he brings in jacob he's reminding us of the covenant um but he's uh, just the fact that jehovah's our savior and redeemer and he is mighty that's tremendously comforting so that if we're scattered Nephi and Jacob, or if we're scattered Bethany and Carrie, uh, it, it, all of these verses, if we're scattered uh, Isaiah and Hezekiah, right, who, who didn't get scattered, but their people, like most of their people died. Mm -hmm. Most people in that kingdom, well, I don't know about most, but a whole lot of people in that kingdom died. In mm -hmm. uh, one way or another, we're all scattered. Thank goodness we have a mighty one who will gather us in. So we've got this interesting mixture of I, I, God is going to send us to be a light to the Gentiles, but then the Gentiles help us accomplish that mission. And in the end, it's God who's going to really save us, right? So yes, we have a job to do, but God makes it possible for us to do it. We'd never be able to do it without him. But our job is to be bring his light to gather Israel and gather all the world. And that's really the focus of these chapters in it, it with that covenant relationship that lets us know he'll never give up helping us, never give up working with us. And, and you get a sense for why this is such a, a powerful stuff for Nephi and for the Book of Mormon and for Isaiah and for the Savior himself. Absolutely. 
Um, I don't know that I have anything to add to that. That was <laughs> summed up very beautifully. So that's. Well, I don't have anything to add either. So I guess that's maybe a, a good place. I, I guess we can just uh, hope that everyone feels comfort in knowing that we have a savior and a redeemer who's the mighty one of Jacob and that uh, you take some time to think about how you might be trying to leave Babylon and why it's hard for you and then ask for some help because we've got some pretty powerful help available to us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Bethany. I sure appreciate uh, your, it went like it's been less than 24 hours since we Ask Bethany if she'd be the guest host here. So, so thank you for being willing to do that. And, and thanks to our audience for being willing to listen. And we hope that if you find this helpful, you'll also uh, help other people. That's really the point here. We're all trying to help each other. We're a covenant community. So uh, pass it along and, and thank you, Bethany. Oh, thank you, Carrie. <laughs>